Thanks for joining us today for the Anchor Daily. We are reading through the books of Acts, learning about the early church and the unstoppable power of the gospel. Listen close as we dive deep into Luke's and Paul's accounts. Hey, Bethel. It's Derek again, ready to look at the last two chapters of the letter of Colossians with you. And what we dwelled upon yesterday, we saw Paul continually remind the Colossian audience about the truth of the gospel, who they are because of what Jesus accomplished for them. Paul warned them, and by extension us, that others would try to convince Christians that they needed other things in addition to Jesus in order to live rightly, but that they really needed to remember Jesus and rely on him since he was the only one who lived in a way that followed God's law. So as they remember and rely on Jesus, what does this life actually look like? Well, that's what Paul gets into here in chapters three and four. He begins chapter three, verses one and two this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. See, Paul's first call to action isn't to go and do something, but rather to seek things that we are actually incapable of doing. He doesn't say to seek things that are inside us, that we've got figured out, but rather to seek things above us that are outside of our power and control and to set our minds on those things. See, we may want action steps, at least my heart does, but Paul tells us we are incapable of those actions in and of ourselves, and we have to remember that. We can't do anything by our own ability because all ability has been given to us by Jesus. When I struggle and I return again to that sin that I thought was conquered, if if I think it's up to me to conquer it again, I'm going to get depressed because I've already failed. I tried with all my own strength and I could not do it. But Jesus is seated in heaven. He has already conquered every sin and every temptation that I will struggle with. And when I seek him instead of my own ability, there's finally hope. No matter what my pattern of sin, I can be freed, not because I can muscle through it, but because I am resting in what Jesus has already defeated. And to highlight this truth, Paul doesn't get more than two verses into this chapter without again reminding everybody about the gospel. Chapter three, verses three and four read, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul's about to get into specifics about what the Christian life should look like but he just has to remind us one more time, even after spending the first two chapters reminding us that we are hidden with Jesus and we will never lose that status. See, it is so easy for me to think when I give in to temptation that God is mad at me, that I'm no longer worthy of being a Christian. I'm no longer worthy of having other people care for me or about me, that that I'm a complete failure. And the truth is, I was never worthy even in the first place. And yet, God still looked at me and wanted me to be a part of his family. There's nothing I can do now that can shake or change that. 
I have become worthy because Jesus is worthy and I am hidden in him. Not because I cleaned up my act perfectly and I got it all together. And when I remember that incredible truth, the temptation to sin becomes less enticing and exciting to me because I am more amazed by what Jesus has done for me. So Paul takes this glorious truth and shows us what a life based upon it should look like. When we know we are hidden in Christ, we should want to put the things to death that Paul states in verse five. Things like uh, sexuality outside of God's design for marriage between man and a woman. Or maybe it's the idolatry of politics that can start to color our view of the world. He tells us many things to put off here or things that aren't to characterize a Christian life. And then he lists things that should characterize a Christian life in the next set of verses. And I'll let you look at everything when you read through, but I just want to highlight one example. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 13. Paul, talking about forgiveness, writes, If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Do you see how impossibly high Paul has set the standard for forgiveness? As the Lord has forgiven you. How much has he forgiven us? That's probably the first question to ask. Well, we've hurt him infinitely to the point of deserving death. And yet he has forgiven us that infinite amount. How then can we not forgive others just the same? I mean, I know I hold grudges over even the smallest things amongst my friends and probably even some of the bigger offenses. I don't even bring up or talk with them about it because I think it's useless. But Paul is telling us that a Christian life is one characterized by radical, big forgiveness because we understand how much we have been forgiven in the first place. And Paul puts this into practice for us to see even here at the close of Colossians. In chapter 4, verse 10, this is in the middle of of Paul thanking people and telling the Colossian church uh, who to trust when they come into town. And two names that he mentions here are Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And he adds parenthetically about Barnabas himself that when he comes to Colossae, the church should welcome him. Do you remember where where we last heard of Mark and Barnabas? It was all the way back in the first part of Acts. Barnabas was Paul's traveling companion and fellow missionary on his first missionary journey. And he stood strong with Paul to the Jerusalem council in chapter 15 of Acts to say that the Gentiles could be Christians by faith in Jesus. See, these guys, Paul and Barnabas, they were the best of friends. They were as close as brothers. They worked together for many years. But right after that moment in front of the Jerusalem council, Acts 15, 39, says that there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And this disagreement, we know, was was over Mark, something that Mark had done while they were on a missionary journey together. And this disagreement was so big and so painful that these best friends separated and they would never serve together again. Yikes, (laughs) that's a lot. But here in Colossians, Years after this disagreement and this split, Paul is telling the church to welcome Mark and Barnabas. See, 
over the years, there's been growth. There's been healing. There's been forgiveness between these brothers. As they understand how much Jesus has forgiven them, they begin to forgive each other. Paul then ends his letter to the Colossians in the same way he started. In the last verse of chapter four, he writes, grace be with you. If you remember all the way at the beginning of yesterday, we looked that the letter began in the same way with Paul offering grace, and thus it ends in the same way. It required grace at every step of the way to get there. We can't be the people that this letter describes without the incredible grace of Christ. May our lives, Bethel Church, be characterized by radical, big forgiveness through the remembrance of his grace. Jesus, give us these hearts. May this define us because of what you have done. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Listen tomorrow as we encourage each other through God's word. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so because we would love to continue to grow with you. We'd also like a chance to connect further with you. If you go to Bethel.ch, you can find all sorts of ways to serve, worship, and learn together.